Thank you. Hey, thanks, guys. Hey, there's still a whole bunch of people in the cafe, but I know that I think they can hear my voice. But So will everybody please help me say thank you to the worship team and our frontline folks and our prayer people. So good. And there's a ton. Listen, don't close those doors yet because people are coming in, so we need to let them come in. But uh, because uh, full services like this, uh, we tend to back up against the clock. So uh, that while they're still refreshing themselves, please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Woo! Thank you for saying it robustly enough that those in the cafe can hear us. All right. Here's what we're about to see in the text this morning. We remember that we have been, we came from chapter 6 a couple of weeks ago, and, and the, the Lamb, the only worthy one, is breaking open this seal that, well, that no one was worthy to open. And we went through the first six seals on this scroll, and the first four uh, were loose these horse and riders, these these uh, the four horsemen of tribulation, and they 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 exacted, they stirred up upon the earth really the consequences of man's own sin, aggression and violence and lack and death. But all of them were only uh, expressed in measure because the whole point was to is to get mankind to incite mankind to uh, to re- to abandon his sin and to repent and to turn to the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we got to the fifth seal, and we hear the, the, the saints interceding. And then the sixth, by the time we got to the sixth seal, there was cosmic upheaval. And people are running for the hills and rocks and crying out because of the wrath of the Lamb. And it just doesn't get bigger than that. That is a crescendo in redemptive history. But then, chapter 7. And chapter 7 begins with this phrase, this, this, these two words in, in the NIV, after this. Someone say after this. And it's, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a metatatu in the Greek, and it just means, it, 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 in Revelation, it signals something to the reader. That, the, that if you're looking at a screen like I am, the screen has changed. There's a, there's a shift or a change in what he sees. So after this, it's not necessarily like, and then next, it's a, it indicates that there is a new or a, there is a new vision happening. He's seeing something new. And so that's what happens. So right in the middle or toward the end of these scrolls being open, now he sees a new vision. And I'm just going to give you a heads up to let you know what we're seeing this morning is going to be a flashback. Because it, the revelation doesn't necessarily follow an exact progression, linear progression. It's a narrative. So you, just like in the books you read or the movies that you often see, there's a, the story of something will unfold. And then we go back for a flashback or a close-up up into a person or a circumstance, and that's oftentimes what happens in Revelation. And so what we're going to see is a close-up, if you will, or of, of the saints of God during the time, before even that we see what's happening in that fifth seal, the saints of God, something is happening to them even before these four horsemen are loosed. Now, I've mentioned to you that there are several different kinds of interpretations and approaches, paradigms of exploration in the book of Revelation. And I, and I'm, and I'm, I want to be honest with you and say I, I'm doing my best not to adopt a certain lens, take that lens, and place it over the text. The lens that I have used to interpret Revelation is confusion. 
Well, I, mean, look, I, come to the, I come to the text like everybody else going, what in the world is happening? And then doing your best to listen and to pray and to study and to look through all of the lenses possible and then to come to a place where I feel a sense of where I can have a conviction to bring the text. And I want to emphasize that I strongly believe that the text is written to be read and responded to with a sense of urgency. It is not a text that is designed to be, to, be, to, be, to be cataloged or compartmentalized into speculation. To do so is to abandon our, our urgent response to it. So back to chapter 7. Here we go. We have John's going to have himself another vision. So now we chapter 7 and verse 1. After this, ah, there it is. Click the little clicker. I wish we still had those slideshow things, click, clack, clack, that were really heavy and clumsy because then you would know what I mean. But anyway, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or sea or any tree. Now, you might say, well, what's going on here? What's the four corners of the earth? Is the earth a cube? No. It means the same thing that we might take it to mean today. He means the whole world. Four angels are holding back four winds from their assignment. What are these four winds? Well, I would suggest if we stay with the text, we've already heard. There's, we've only heard of four winds or four spirits so far. Remember that John said that these four horse and riders are four spirits. Wind and spirit is the same word. Same word. Same word in the Greek, same word in the Hebrew, okay? It's pneuma in Greek and uh, ruach in Hebrew. And you have to... when you. Okay, Zechariah 6.5, we've already seen these things described in the Old Testament. The angel said to me, these are the four spirits of heaven. These horse and riders are called the four spirits of heaven, going, going forth after standing before the Lord of the earth. Uh, Jeremiah 49.36 uses the phrase winds. I'm going to bring upon Elam the four winds of the four ends of heaven. So what we're seeing here then, I suggest, is, a, it happens, is something that happens before these horsemen are loosed. Verse 2, then I saw an angel... See, I know that maybe you already know, but I know because I've said it twice and I'm excited. So then I saw another angel coming up from the east. Somebody say from the east. And having the seal of God. From the east, the east is a place where light comes. It's where the sun rises. I think you knew that. But in the Old Testament, it also is a place from where the, the glory of the Lord comes from the east. So if something's coming from the east like this, it is an image of incredible hope. And, is this, and what is coming is an angel who's bringing the seal of the living God, like a signet ring. A signet ring or a seal of this kind would be a distinctive, would, would leave a distinctive mark of ownership upon the person or thing it was placed. A mark of ownership. It would be proof of authenticity. And the ring or the signet would, <laughs> the seal would often bear the name or the image of the one who bore it. So the seal would leave the impression of his own name or image. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Well, what's he going to do with that seal? Well, verse 2 continues. He, the angel, called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land or the sea. He says, don't harm it. Don't harm land, sea, trees until we put a seal. Say seal. seal. 
seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Those two those words are important. Seal, forehead, and servant. We're going to see that again. We're going to see it today. We're going to see it next time. We're going to see it in 14. You're going to see it in 22. It's going to keep coming. So get happy. Don't move. He says, don't move yet until we seal the servants of God. Who are the servants of God? Well, hello, 10 o'clock. Well, hello. That's right. Say it again. Who's the servants of God? That's right. The audience of this letter. It begins by saying that this is written to the servants of God. The seven churches in Revelation are described as the servants of God. The servants of God is everybody who is intending to read this as those who belong to Christ. The servants of God are the redeemed. And they are going to get a seal placed on their heads. A seal. Now, what do we, what do we know about this? Well, again, the, the, the audience John would have known, the Lord's going to be faithful to his word. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. Listen to this idea about putting a seal or a mark on the forehead. You ready? The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over, not just those who sigh and groan, not just the miserable ones, okay? But those who sigh and groan over the abominations which are being committed in its midst. In other words, there were abominations, there were acts of unrighteousness being committed, and the Lord said, look for those who are responding to uh, that unrighteousness with grief and anger inside, who are expressing that in prayer and in regret and repentance. He's looking for those who are loyal to him, for those who, uh, who are lovers of righteousness and who cannot stand the abominations of wickedness, and he says, those people are mine, mark them. Mark them. And they said, but to the others, he said, in my hearing, go through the city and strike. Do not have pity and do not spare, but do not touch any man on, upon whom is the mark. So this seal identifies, identifies ownership, and it is a seal of protection. You belong to the Lord, and you are spared. You are free from his wrath. You belong and you are protected. Someone say belong and protected. You don't seem happy enough yet, so we've got to keep working. The New Testament also affirms that the redeemed have been sealed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul says to us, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, guess what happened? You were marked. You were marked. Pop. You were marked in him with a... Seal, I know, you're thinking, which word are you supposed to say? First word, mark, next word, seal. You were marked in him with a seal. And what is that seal? The promised Holy Spirit. Oh. Oh, so it's not just an impersonal thing. You're not just getting clonked on the head with a big ring. (laughs) Clonked is a funny word. Uh, you are not just getting, you are marked in him with a seal, and that seal is personal. He is marking you with his own self. I don't have time to get this excited. The Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. 
Ah, so New Testament believers are marked with a seal indicating we are God's possession. Ooh. Paul says it again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Anybody happy? He anointed us. Ooh. Set, and here's what we mean by anointed. You ready? Verse 22. Set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. One more thing about those sealed, 2 Timothy 2. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. We belong. The seal means you belong. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Those who belong, behave like it. Whatever else it, it, it means so far, we know this. We can see from Scripture, from, the, from, from Old Testament and New Testament, is this. That being sealed means, number one, you belong to God. You are His. He has brought you near. You bear His Spirit. Further, we behave like those who belong to Him. We abstain from wickedness and we live a holy life. And we are sealed as a promise and with protection for what is to come. In this life and all that we endure, we heard some of those people, the, the people, the word of the Lord just kind of percolating today, aware of this, just confirming this, that there may be pressure, even in the pressure of this world and the devil being our frenemy. You're sealed, you're protected, you're promised. You are sealed just like those in Revelation. We see that they are sealed so that they will endure, so that they will be protected, so that they will be faithful during what comes. What, who, are, who are these servants of God? Who are the sealed? They are the church militant. Somebody say the church militant. The church militant. This passage begins by telling us that all of the servants would be marked that no one would be left out. And they are sealed before or so that they will persevere. This is the church militant. Marked, sealed, standing, so they will persevere. They belong, they behave, they are protected. And then John describes them. He says, oh, look. Verse, verse four continues. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. Oh, there's a number. 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. Now listen to this. I don't have time to do it, but we're going to do it because it's fun. Okay? There's 12,000 from each of these tribes. I'll say the name and you say 12,000. From Judah, 12, Reuben, 12, Gad, 12, Asher, 12, Dasher, 12, Naphtali. It's funny every time. Manasseh, 12, Simeon, 12, Levi, 12, Issachar, 12, Zebulun, 12, Joseph. Benjamin, ah, 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 12, except for this. One of Joseph's sons, Ephraim, is replaced with Joseph. And Dan, sorry, Dan's in the room. Dan didn't even make the list. What's going on? John losing his mind, getting a little bit of a geezer? What's going on here? No, in the book of Judges, the tribes of Ephraim and Dan are known, it is their reputation, 
for initiating and participating in idolatry. So what we have here, the sealed are those who belong, who, are, who identify as gods, who are loyal and faithful to the Lord. Now, I need to pause again right now. This is important because I think it, this whoo, makes me really happy. But there are, there are some who teach that when, with, with regard to the 144,000, that is a very specific and limited group of people. There are some who believe that it's that it's that's that some sort of super elect, you know, super Christians over here, and others others teach that it is a specific and limited ethnic group of people that it was, and they are ethnically set aside at a certain distant time. Here's, I don't believe that the text, the evidence in the text, if we follow the evidence in the text, I don't believe the the, the text lends lends toward those conclusions. And one of the reasons why, one of the collateral reasons why is how we began. The book of Revelation is written with a sense of urgency. There's nothing in this text that is written for speculation. We are not to be like Hezekiah of old when the prophet came to him and, and said, here's what's going to happen. And Hezekiah says, he said, ah, it'll be okay. It won't happen in my lifetime. He ignored the word of the Lord because he let it be speculation instead of obedience. The revelation is not written for that. It is written for every audience to respond with urgency, to feel a sense of invincible hope, and to respond with a sense of loyal obedience and faithfulness to God now. And if we dismiss its passages... For you know, long, long ago in a, land, in a galaxy far, far away, we miss the urgency. These things are written. The, end, the text indicates that this is written to the servants of the Lord. Someone say the servants of the Lord. Who, who is that? That's right, the servants of the Lord, so that they might live, so that they might live faithfully through tribulation. Furthermore, John has no concept of the people of God outside of being identified as Israel. To him, Israel means, that's a name, it's, a, it's idiomatic for the people of God. Gentiles throughout Scripture are now, well, throughout the New Testament, they are now equated to and referred to as the sons of Israel. Throughout the New Testament and through the rest of Revelation, if you belong to Jesus, you are part of the sons of God. You're part of the people of Israel. Revelation says that every that the redeemed of the Lord will be from every tribe. I'm I'm glad. Even English Irish folk, even the Scots are in. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation on earth. And the New Testament, specifically the people that were under the influence of the Apostle Paul, which these seven in, in these seven churches in Revelation were started by Paul, they would have heard this in Galatians: for you are all sons of God. Through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, you've closed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's not male, not female. You are all one in Christ. Listen to this, verse 29. Get ready to get your happy on. And if you belong to Christ, anybody belong to Christ? Yeah. Whoa, good crowd. Anybody belong to Christ? Yeah. Then you are Abraham's descendants. Yeah. You know what that makes me? Father Abraham, have many sons, 
and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. What should we do? So let's just praise the Lord. Then we begin in Sunday school, arrow, acrobatics things. Okay. Furthermore, it's even more. They're, they're arranged in groups of, in multiples of 12. We've already seen this. 12 times 12. i got to say this carefully. The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Here we have these multiples of 12. We have this, this covenantal people of God. But it's even more than that. That number, 144,000 to John's audience, would have represented an incredibly huge, vast number. Un almost uncountable. It's so vast. This massive crowd. And yet, that is the point. You have this incredibly massive number, and yet every single one of them are known. Every single one of them are sealed. Every single one of them belong. Every single one. So this, listen, there may be, you might say, how can God, does God know me in a world, in a massive world of, of billions of believers over the years? Let me tell you what, he knows your name because he's written his name on you. And finally, this is the thing. They are organized in units of a thousand. They are organized in units of a thousand, and there is, there's really only one way to understand that. These are military units. This is the church militant. They are lined up, and they are ordered for conflict. But understand this, especially as we consider the first text, the first readers. They are lined up and they are ordered for conflict, but their only means of resisting the corruption and persecution of their society was martyrdom. Understand this, when we say the church militant, we mean that for them in particular, onward Christian soldiers marching off to war meant lining up to die. They overcame. They overcame. The Bible says they overcame. Romans 12, uh, Romans 12 Revelation 12, we'll see it. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much to shrink from death. And yet, they turned the whole world upside down. They turned the whole world upside down. Every world power, every great nation on earth has fallen. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has risen and it remains. I think it's important for us to recognize that this text is written for us, but it's written to people who could not vote.
They lived under the boot of military might. Their only means of resistance was, as we said, martyrdom and righteousness and fervent prayer. For them, these military units were people who were committed to living unto Jesus in righteousness, that their, the battles they fought were fought with fervent prayer, and then they gave their lives instead of surrendering to corruption. I do think that the early church would be confused by contemporary Christians who can vote but do not. I think they would go, huh? Huh? All you got to do is go mark a thing, express your will. I think they all, I think they would be shocked, however, by Christians who can pray but don't. It's disheartening to hear that only 60% of Christians vote regularly. The dire conditions of our political world events those results, but even more disheartening is that far fewer than 60% participate in prayer meetings, and the results really speak for themselves. Further, the early church's resistance to idolatry and immorality in, of their age was their righteousness. So, it, it, friends, we've got to be careful because it does no good to decry the corruption and perversion in our society if we have accommodated and entertained those things in our hearts and our homes. Because you cannot overcome that which you have come into agreement with. Make no mistake, the church militant is fervent in prayer. They are consecrated in holiness. They are committed to righteousness. The church militant is faithful. They are loyal. They are enduring. They are persevering. They are not victims. They are overcomers. They are not oppressors. They are servants. They confront suffering on every front. They continue the great commission, teaching all nations to obey Jesus. They are his spirit-empowered witnesses. They trust in the Lord and they do good. They are salt and they are light. They resist the corrupting influence of our carnal culture and they are a beacon of truth and of hope to a dark and hurting and broken world. This is the church militant. That was them. That was them. This is you. This is us. You are the church militant. So let me ask you today, do you belong? I've asked you several times today, are you part of the redeemed? 
I'm going to ask you if you belong, if you're a part, if you have been sealed, if you're a part. If you've called on the name of the Lord, would you stand to your feet and join those? As the song has said, we'll join a thousand generations. <laughs> I'll join a thousand generations. Stand and be counted and be part. Our world our world takes pride in their moral rebellion. So as the church militant, in the name of the Lord, I want to ask, I want to urge you to do three things today as we walk out of here. The first is to take time for prayer. My dad used to say to me, son, he said, son, time is made, not found. Take time for prayer. Secondly, take inventory of your choices. Do your choices reflect and express the righteousness of your calling? Are you behaving like one who belongs? And thirdly, continue to take seriously the view of eternity and live accordingly. So let it be today. We shout the hymn of heaven with angels and the saints. We raise a mighty roar and glory to our God who gave us life beyond the grave. Holy, holy is the Lord. So let it be today. We shout. God bless you, friends. Thank you so much for being here. Please, if you would, make your way to the cafe. Enjoy some more fellowship and some more food. Let's try to make room for our friends who will be joining us soon. God bless you.